My name is Pastor Jacob. On behalf of Pastor Jeff and all of our um, church family, our officers, I uh, welcome you to this place. Um, what a wonderful time of the year to come into God's house and to celebrate worship together in the time of Advent. And um, if you are not familiar with that word, uh, we are in the church calendar in a period of weeks where we celebrate the coming. And what we know that to mean is the coming of the Savior, the coming of Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, um, who was eternal before everything and yet had a human beginning and came into Bethlehem as a baby boy born to human parents and that was his first coming. And as the church, we celebrate Advent not only because he is our Savior, but because we have another promise. And that is that that same Jesus will come again for us. Isn't that good news? I just had the flu and I almost said, Lord, take me now. <laughs> I can't take it. It's not the way it used to be. I used to be able to handle this. This is hard. You know, like the aches and pains, we could barely move. You're just lying in bed. And, and I, I, I realized, you know, I have a greater affection for heaven after every illness that comes along during, uh, during the years as you get older. Um, but in all seriousness, that is our hope. This is not our home. We are not meant to live in this existence. Certainly there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And there's a mystery behind all of that. And yet there's a longing for Jesus to come again. I want, along with Pastor Jeff and our officers, listen to this, please, people of God. I want us to be a people who are longing for Jesus to come again. Not the other way around. Jesus, please just hold off. Just wait. Wait till my lifetime's over. No, we should be a people who are hungering after Jesus to come again, to renew the world, to renew us and all these things. I have a question for you. I'm sorry, I'm still recovering from the flu and, and feel just very depleted in energy, but I pray the Lord will still use today in, in the ways that He can through His Word. Um, I'm going to ask you a question and then I'll pray. Um, actually, before the question... I, I do want to take a moment to share something as a pastoral privilege. Um, this is our church. I am one of your pastors, and I count myself as one of you, not more than you, not necessarily less than you, but one of you. And that means that this church belongs to us. I wonder if you all sense that same level of ownership for our church. Why am I sharing this? Um, I'm sharing this partially because of concern for our church. Friends, we, we need help right now financially. We do. I know that there's visitors here. This is not meant for you. It's meant for really for our church family. In order for us to do the things that we need to do, we all need to be a part of the ownership of it, of being a part of the workings of it. And that means certainly coming to worship and doing all those things, but it also means we want the church to thrive and to do the things that it's called to do. And in order to do that, we need your help. And so I know churches do this all around the world at the end of the year, but I'm making a pastoral plea for, from my heart even to you. Listen, 
in order for us to do the things that we have prayerfully thought through and carefully delegated and assigned. We need all of God's people to to participate. And this is the time. This is the time to give towards the, the work of the church. Otherwise, this is how it feels like for me. We can't do all the things that we want to do and plan to do. We have to make limitations because that's the human way. But would you consider this just as a, a, a pastoral plea to you, uh, brothers and sisters who love the church? Listen, if the church has benefited you, if you've grown here, if you've been blessed by the Lord here, then be an owner of it and participate in it. 100% participation. And that's how we'll make our church grow. That's how we'll do the things that we need to do. And you know, we don't talk about this all the time because we believe God will provide and we believe the Lord will lead His church. But I need to say it at the same time because it's our family. A church, in my opinion, is a family of families. And so we take care of it together. I pray that that the Lord will just use that in the right way in your own hearts. So here's a question for you. What is the most impacting story that you have ever read? The most maybe jolting or life-changing story that you have ever read, heard, or seen? Well, let me pray for a moment and then we'll jump into that question. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, may your blessings be upon us as a little church. We are just a small little community and yet we are your people. And yet, you have put us here as a part of the universal church to spread the good news of Jesus, our Savior, until He comes again. And so, Lord, we want to do the work of the church. Would you continue to bless us and keep us? Thank you for your holy word that has been given freely to us to freely give to others. Help us to do that. Bless us during this Advent season. Bless every family. I pray for those who are sick and cannot be here. Lord, um, enable us to enjoy this season. We love you so much and we thank you that you've loved us first. And my prayer for my own heart and everyone in this room is that you would give us eyes to see Jesus a little better. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. If you ask me that question, there are a number of stories that stand out among stories. My grandfather was a farmer and he was a storyteller. One of my earliest memories is standing on his bed in southern India in the village and him telling me the story of Jonah. It was my favorite story as a three-year-old as my parents tell me later that I used to love to repeat hearing that story as my granddad shared it with me. The story of Jonah, the whale, obviously a favorite one for many, many kids. But over the years, there are so many other stories that we've encountered, right? One is, for me, Les Miserables. Remember I shared that a few weeks ago? Victor Hugo's magnificent work. A powerful story, isn't it? It's kind of life-changing, actually, when you think about law and grace and and the freedom that you can have. If you have never read that book, that's a project. But if you, need, if you need to read that book, you need to read Victor Hugo or at least see some of the adaptations of that story. Another story for me is um, one that was actually written by a classmate of mine. His name is familiar to many of you. He was a fellow student at NYU with me. His name was M. Night Shyamalan. And he wrote a story, he wrote the screenplay of a story called The Sixth Sense. 
So I was elated. It was one of my classmates. I didn't know him super well, but we were at things together, and I remember him very well. And this film came out in 1999, several years after we graduated. And The Sixth Sense is a story of a young boy named Cole Sear who's visited by ghosts. And Cole is frightened by visitations from those with unresolved problems who appear from the shadows. And he's too afraid to tell anyone about his anguish except a child psychologist, Dr. Malcolm Crow, who was played by Bruce Willis. If you've seen that story, you kind of think about it and think about it and think about it again and again. It's one of my favorite night movies ever, um, stories ever. It was one of my favorite stories. It impacted me after I watched that movie for many, many years. I kept thinking and thinking about it. Another story is straight from the Scripture. And that is Genesis 45. Genesis 45 is the story of Joseph revealing himself as an Egyptian through interpreters to his brothers who put him in a pit and left him to die because of jealousy. And in Genesis 45, you see a climax where the brothers are now standing before him asking for bread and Joseph is the king who could ultimately kill them. But he shows mercy and says, don't delay, come close. Don't be afraid, come close. That is the story that actually brought me to Christ. As I began to understand who Jesus really is to us who are His brothers who've shunned Him and did not want to have anything to do with Him, and yet He shows mercy to us. Genesis 22 is like that. It is one of the most dramatic stories in the Bible. It is the story of a man who was asked by God to sacrifice and kill his own son. I don't know when was the last time you read Genesis 22, but you need to read Genesis 22 every once in a while, maybe yearly, to understand the perplexity and the complexity of why God would ask someone to do this. When I was a young man, I heard a song on this story, this biblical story written by a wonderful storyteller named Michael Card, and that made me think about and learn this story even more. Let me read the lines from this song, right? This is Michael Card's retelling of Genesis 22 through song called God Will Provide a Lamb. Three days journey to the sacred place, a boy and a man with a sorrowful face tortured yet faithful to God's command to take the life of His Son with His own hands. God will provide a lamb to be offered up in your place, a sacrifice so spotless and clean to take all your sin away. There's wood and fire. Where's the sacrifice? The questioning voice and the innocent eyes. Is the son of laughter who you've waited for to die like a lamb to please the Lord. A gleaming knife, an accepted choice, a rush of wind and an angel's voice, a ram in the thicket caught by his horns and a new age of trusting the Lord is born. God has provided a lamb. He was offered up in your place. What Abraham was asked to do, he has done. He's offered his only son. What Abraham was asked to do, he's done. He's offered his only son. 
powerful story. If you want to look up that song, it's a beautiful retelling, beautiful storytelling song. There's two key things that I want you to walk away from today during the Advent season. In the context of Christmas, in the Advent of in the context of what the Advent means for us, Genesis 22 has a powerful place, a significant place. And two things I want to share with you today, because we can't go into everything on a Sunday morning, but I hope that you'll dive in even deeper at home. The two things are the intensity of God's love. The intensity of God's love. Friends, one of the biggest mistakes that we make is that we do not recognize how loved you are by God. We walk around as orphans when actually we are sons and we are daughters. We are so loved. You, right where you are today with your hang-ups and problems, you are so loved by God. But do you take time to think about the intensity of God's love? For his son and Abraham for his son. We'll look at that a little bit more. And the second main idea that I want to think about today is this powerful theme of substitution that comes across in this story. This powerful idea of substitution through four ways. One is Isaac's question. Chapter 22, verse 7. Abraham's response. Chapter 22, verse 8. The angel's words to Abraham. Chapter 22, verses 11 and 12. And then hopefully if we have time, Abraham's declaration where he calls that place the Lord will provide. Abraham's declaration, Genesis 22, 14. So previously in the life of Abraham, we saw that God calls Abraham, right? A pagan, pagan worshiper, out of his land and the place of his father and all of that. And God calls him out. And we saw that Abraham loved God more than his father in order to do that because God revealed himself to him and God said, leave your father. Leave your homeland. Leave everything familiar to you. And out of faith in this living God who revealed Himself to him, Abraham did it. What do we see in Genesis 22? Abraham was called to love God more than his son. So he's already left homeland and father because he loved God more than his father. And here, we see that Abraham loved God more than his son. In verses 1 and 2, we see the command from God. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. That's the first part. God gives this command, right? And um, it seems like an outrageous thing. It seems like it would not make sense. It seems like it is, a, it, it is such a harsh thing in the context of what God has already taught about life and blood and things like that. In fact, let me read to you Genesis 
chapter 9, I'm sorry, yeah, chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. That is what God said in Genesis 9. And here in Genesis 22, what does he ask Abraham? To take the life of his son. Does that make sense? Does it fit? It just doesn't. It just doesn't add up, right? And what we see in this passage is maybe in some of your Bibles you have this subheading. It is a testing of Abraham's faith. That's what's going on here. God is asking Abraham to do something to test if he truly does love him and truly does believe in him and truly surrendered his whole life and everything that he has and loves over to God. Take now your son, your only son, Isaac. That's the context. We're going to come more into this to these words uh, in a moment or two as we think about the intensity of God's love. But doesn't, in your mind, you go back to, well, Abraham had another son, didn't he? He had a son named Ishmael whom was the son of his own doing, was the son of their own planning to kind of go around what they thought God couldn't do. And there was a time where God had said, or Abraham had asked God, please bless Ishmael. Let the blessing come through Ishmael. And God said, no, he is not the son of the promise. And so now Abraham had sent Ishmael and his mother away. And listen to what happens. Now his heart is tied up with one and only son. Because Ishmael is not there. For years now, since Ishmael's departing, Abraham's life and heart is tied up with Isaac and Isaac alone. And that is the moment where God says, take your son, your only son of your heart, the son of your heart, and sacrifice him. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. Do you hear um, sacrifice or call to sacrifice here? It's costly, isn't it, to follow God? I can't help but think of Luke chapter 14, verse 26, which many writers and pastors Recollect in this connection to Genesis 26 and 22 and what God is asking Abraham. Listen to this. Don't you hear the words of Jesus echoing where he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Yeah, I hear that. I hear Abraham saying, you've asked me to leave my father and now you're asking me to give up my son of my heart. That is what it means to follow after the living God who, gave, who has called you to Himself and has revealed you to Himself. It's total surrender, friends. 
It's a total giving in. It's a total, hey, I have nothing. You're everything for me. As I said, it seems to go against the natural order. But based on Genesis 9, 5, and 6 alone, Abraham could have argued with God. But Abraham is really a lived out example of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 for us. Have you ever read Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6? Maybe you know it by heart. This is what it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Could Abraham not have said, but God, you have promised and this was the way it was going to happen through Isaac. It makes no sense for you to ask me to kill Isaac. That's leaning on your own understanding. But trusting in the Lord with all your heart is the Abraham who gets up early the next morning and goes. On a three-day journey with his son Isaac whom he loves the son of his own heart, along with servants. Abraham could have argued with God. But maybe this is why he comes into play in Hebrews chapter 11 as the great man of faith, as the example of faith given to us in Hebrews 11. By the way, if you have not looked at that passage, you need to go back to Hebrews 11 and see what it says about Abraham too. And he, how God had given him the faith that he knew that even if Isaac was going to be killed, he had belief in the resurrection that God would raise that same Isaac to life again and the promise would be fulfilled by God. He knew, he believed, he trusted in the idea of resurrection and all that God had taught him. Now, I want to take a, an excursus for just a moment and talk about Moriah. Go to the, play, the land of Moriah, to the mountain that I shall show you, God says, right? I'm sure that many of you who are Christians and have studied God's Word have looked at that before. There's many, just a, a couple months ago, I was in South Dakota and visited a great cemetery named Mount Moriah. And I was thinking, wow, that name still continues in many places. Many people recognize it. Moriah is the place and the area where God asks Abraham to travel three days from his home because God had selected that place to go up the mountain and to sacrifice his son Isaac. Now what's the background? Years later, about a thousand years later, King David buys the threshing floor of a Jebusite named Arona. Listen to this. King David buys the threshing floor of a Jebusite named Arona where David offers up a sacrifice, builds an altar and offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God to spare the people of Jerusalem from the angel of death and the plague. So David sets up this altar, buys this land from Arona the Jebusite and asks God to spare the people of God and he does so and he offers 
uh, sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. That's found in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 18 and 21, by the way, if you want to study a little bit about that location. Then Solomon, his son, uses that same plot of land and builds there the temple, which lasted for 400 years, where hundreds and thousands of sacrifices were made. That same exact place where Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac. And the temple was rebuilt and Herod adds to it, right? And then we know that the temple was eventually destroyed after Jesus' time, but it's that same exact vicinity where Jesus is thought to have been crucified at Golgotha, the area of Moriah, outside of Jerusalem. Does this have a connection? Is God doing something? Is God's story bigger than just a narrative? Yes. Every single part matters. God is doing something to show us that that place that Abraham declares at the end of 22 called the Lord will provide and on the mount the Lord will provide is what Abraham declares. It is going to be the place where God provides ultimately. For you, my friends, where you're lacking right now, where you're doubting right now, where you need God to come into the gap right now, God has provided a place where he says, and on that mount I will provide. And Abraham declares it, the Lord will provide. There's so much here. Why does God command this? On the one hand, it's a supreme test of Abraham's faith, teaching many people afterwards like us what it really means to have faith, what true faith really is. As I mentioned, Hebrews 11 This is a great story about faith. It is. It is a testing of Abraham to see if he really did love God. But the story is also a clear foreshadowing of sacrifice and atonement that was to come the death of Jesus the Son on the cross. You know, never again does God require a, a father to sacrifice his son. Never again after this instance. And God is showing the connection between the sacrifice and the substitute. You see, because of what we know is going to happen with the cross, because of what we know God the Father does with His own Son, what we see happening in this narrative is a flood of light coming over this narrative to show us what's really happening in the perplexity, the light of substitutionary sacrificial atonement for all of God's sons and daughters. And God intends to show us the great love and cost of a greater father himself who did not spare his son for the sake of a great rescue and provision. I want you to think a moment about what I shared earlier, the intensity of the love of a father for a son. When God said, take your son, and then He says, your only son, 
And then he says his name, Isaac. And then he says, whom you love. As God is saying these words to Abraham, can you imagine that scene with me of every syllable burning in Abraham's heart? You mean my beloved son? The one I've waited? The one you made me wait a hundred years for? Your son. Your only son. Isaac, whom you love. The words are searing into Abraham's heart as God is saying it. And what I want you to recognize is that that was setting up a vision for us of another father who was also burning in his heart. How intense is God's love for his son. We tend to think lightly of it, right? Well, he's God. But have you any idea how hard and painful and the cost and the burning inside God the Father's heart as he watched his son climb up Mount Calvary? It is no less than Abraham's pain. It is no less than the anguish It is an intense love that Abraham had for his son. He's burning. He's crying. He's watching this happen. He's going with his son, knowing what is to happen. And every step and every word is echoing in Abraham's heart and mind. This is a reminder to us of God the Father's involvement. God is not an innocent, just a bystander watching this happen. This is a picture for us of God the Father watching or putting into place by His own hand the death of His Son. The Father did this. He put Him to death. He goes through with it completely and fully doing the act. And it's a poignant reminder to us of His involvement, His cost, His great love to spare us by providing the substitute of His own Son to be with Him forever because that was the only way that we could be saved. I love the imagery of the father of Abraham. (laughs) And what is Abraham's response? He gets up early, verse 3. And that was not just because it was going to be a three-day journey. He gets up early because he's eager to do what God has told him to do. Listen, if it was you and you were the one who was asked, would you get up early? If God had asked you something like that, would you get up early? Would you say, let me wait a little. Let me wait till the afternoon. Let me see if I can have another conversation Early the next morning, Abraham gets up and makes his way on this three-day journey, eager to obey his God. It's a picture of unhesitating faith and perseverance for three long days to the mountain. Let me, um, just for the sake of time, go to these words. 
You know the idea of the substitute? It is so powerful in this story, isn't it? Because many of you know it. But Isaac asks in verse 7, And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father... And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Has there ever been a question so difficult in all of history from a son to a father? So trusting, isn't he? We don't know exactly, but Isaac is not a baby. He's not a toddler. He's probably a Uh, maybe a teenager, maybe even a young man, and he's so loving and trusting of his father Abraham because they loved each other. And he says, Behold, Father, the fire and the wood we have, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Isn't that why we're doing this whole thing? Is to go worship the Lord? By the way, you know what Abraham says to his servants? Stay here while the boy and I go and do worship and we will both come back, is what he says. That's Hebrews 11. He had absolute faith that the Son would be resurrected, but he had in his mind the imagery that the Son is going to die, it's going to happen, but God's going to raise him back up, and then we're both going to come back together to you, my servants. What a powerful question Isaac asks. And then in verse 8, we see Abraham's response. Abraham said, listen, he didn't look at Isaac and say, my son, I'm sorry to tell you, it's you. Either maybe not to traumatize him or to cause a very, very difficult scene to speak of the least. Or maybe just out of love as a father to his son, not wanting to tell his son that he's the one who's going to kill him. Listen to Abraham's very, very poignant and wise and godly response. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. I have no idea what's going through Abraham's mind. I don't know what he's imagining is going to happen. But he does know God and he does know God is going to provide. And in my mind, I'm imagining he's, he's thinking God's going to provide Isaac back through the resurrection. He has no vision of any other idea in his mind. But we know what happens. There actually is a substitute, isn't there? We come to the angel. Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said again the same words, here I am, I'm present. Lord, here I am, I'm present, I'm right here, I haven't gone anywhere. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham expected the death of his son, 
But the voice comes from heaven from the angel of the Lord and says, Do not touch the boy. And as Abraham hears the voice, he's, he looks up and he sees a ram that is behind him caught in the thicket. And I imagine he already knows that this is how God is provided in sparing his only and beloved son Isaac. And he takes the ram and he kills the ram and he sacrifices the ram and he takes the boy and they go back. And Abraham declares that place the Lord will provide. On the mount of the Lord, He will provide. Friends, is this just a story? Do you see what God the Father is doing is showing us the intense love that He has for His own Son? And then He is showing how through Abraham's life, with Isaac, a substitute has been provided and Abraham's son is spared and the son of promise becomes the ancestor for all of Israel. And yet, there is a bigger picture that is given for all of us. And that is the picture of the cross and Moriah again on Calvary. You know what I love about the Gospel? What I love about the Gospel is that it is repeated over and over and over and over again for God's people in so many ways. I mentioned Genesis 45, didn't I? It's another picture of Jesus forgiving His brethren and saying, no, now you're going to live with Me. You who try to kill Me, now you're going to live with Me in the land of Goshen and I will provide for you there because there's years of famine still to come. So, Come near me. Don't delay. Come and be with me forever. I will give you everything. Don't you hear Jesus' words when he says, In my Father's house are many mansions, and if I go away, I will come back again and take you to be with me so that you also will be with me forever. So many pictures again and again and again. I hear John nineteen seventeen. As Abraham lays the wood on Isaac's back to climb Mount Moriah, aching in his heart, as he puts the wood on Isaac and Isaac is climbing, I hear John 19.17, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. He carried the wood for his own sacrifice. And yet, the beauty of the gospel for us is that on that day, there was not a voice that came out and said, do not touch the boy. Right? On that day, on the cross, there was an utter silence there was a looking away of the Father. There was a darkness. And that is why we hear in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 32, 
which says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? There is no voice from heaven that stopped that act because of an intense love that God the Father has for His children. Do you see how Genesis 22 fits into Advent? It's God retelling the story over and over and over again for us until we can hear the love that God has for you and how He did not spare His own Son but freely gave Him up for us all. Friends, here's my last question to you as we leave today. How do you respond to this? You just close the book, put it away, let it go sit on the bookshelf like another story like Mille Miz. You cannot be neutral to this. You cannot just treat it as another story. This is the story of stories that involves you and your Father, your Heavenly Father, who came and brought life and salvation and sent His Son for us. What do you do with this? You have to respond. This is what the Advent season is all about. It's us sharing this story over and over again for the people of God to hear. That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish ever but have eternal life. That's the beauty of the Gospel. That's the beauty of Advent. Let's let that sink in. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that You would allow us once again to be um, so moved by this. Father, that You would enable us to respond to it. That we would give our lives to You. That we would surrender to You that we would want to tell the whole world about this story, that you did not spare your own son for us. But we thank you for the substitute, and we thank you for the provision. And we thank you for John the Baptist's words as he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.